Second Corinthians. The organization of Second Corinthians is particularly complex. It has two parts: the first part and the second part. The first part is the first nine chapters. It is very positive. People are happy. The second part is very negative. People are unhappy. The first nine chapters are written to the majority of the church that had excommunicated that guy that was married to his stepmom. The second half is written to the people who rejected the church discipline and their super apostles. People try to make 1st and 2nd Corinthians into a bunch of letters. The number of variations of letters that are found inside of 2nd Corinthians is a comical thing. You open up a liberal commentary, you should get a bingo board, and you should look for how many letters they found. And you can find a good number according to the various liberal scholars. The most common position that is held to is that, amongst liberals, is that chapters 10 through 13 are one letter and chapters 1 through 9 are another letter. But the issue is very easily solved by the fact that it is simply a single letter to the church dealing with the two parties. We'll be trying to get through the first two chapters today. The end of chapter 2 has sort of a separate sectionness to it. Um, it starts to deal with the issue of the gospel ministry in the new covenant as distinct from the old covenant, but it's difficult to break down exactly where to stop there, and so I'm going to just go into it anyways, assuming I managed to manage my time well. So 2 Corinthians, I hope that's clear for you. Section, the first half, not the first half, the first section is chapters 1 through 9. The second section is chapters 10 through the end of the book. All right, let's begin. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Here's the from line. 2. The church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia. This verse is very important to proving to you that church discipline in the final form in terms of excommunicating a person is something that requires a vote of the congregation. I'm going to show you the logic of it before we move on. Here is the principal place that this doctrine is drawn from. Chapter 2, verse 6. Jump forward. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. The majority of whom? Well, let's go up to verse 3. And I wrote this very thing to you. Who is the majority? The majority of you. Who is you? The people he's writing to. Who is he writing to? Chapter 1, verse 1. To the church of God, which is at Corinth. Some people like to say the church is represented by the elders. With all the saints who are in all Achaia. So that is why I believe it is necessary to have a vote of the heads of house before excommunication is finalized. The elders can rebuke, admonish, and they can suspend from the table. But that final act, 
requires a vote of the men. So Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth with all the saints who are in all Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, this is the classic Pauline introductory lesson. Grace, demerited favor. In particular, he's asking for the love or favor of God, but also for the giftings, the blessings that come for the saints. So we talk about sanctification and gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then peace from God is, yes, peace with God in terms of reconciliation and inward peace, but it's also talking about the sense of prosperity, the actual possession of prosperity, the absence of strife, grace and peace in their fullness. This is the blessing being called down. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Every time you see consolation, it's comfort. The translators got apparently a little bit tired after the fifth comfort, thought they'd change it up, throw some consolations in. It's more clear when you read it the way Paul wrote it, which is comfort, 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 comfort. We've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten of them from verses 3 to 7. Ten of them. It's a rhetorical trick. Somebody says the same word over and over again, it draws attention to it. So I'm drawing your attention to it. Blessed be the God and and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Now mercies there is rooted in the same word as household. And the idea here is it's sort of the pity of a father. Not just mercies broadly. It's the idea of the the pity or compassion of a father. So the father of all fatherly pitying. And God of all comfort. Now, I can't remember. We have the word comfort in multiple forms. Paraclesis, para... Whatever. You, have, you have the root for the paraclete, right? The paraclete is the comforter. Talk about the Christ is the comforter and the Holy Spirit is another comforter that he sends. And what does the comforter do? The comforter gives comfort. What's comfort? You all know this. Please be bored. Cum means with and forte means strength. Para means with and cleat or chaos, or whatever other things, means strength. So we have this idea of the strength giver, the with strength. The father of fatherly pities, and God of all strength giving, who gives strength to us in all our tribulation. Tribulations are trials, difficulties, hardships. When you face them, you need strength that we may be able to comfort, give strength to those who are in any trouble. With the strength giving, 
with which we ourselves are strength given by God. Right? This is the idea. Who gives you strength? Who gives you power? It's God. Why are we all of a sudden talking about this? I mean, 1 Corinthians was all about the glory in the temple, and it was about the administration of things, and, and seeing the order here in earth in the church according to the order that has been revealed. Here's why. Everybody hates it. They hate it. They hate the doctrine, they hate the worship, and they hate the church order. The doctrine is sharp and distinct and clear, and it rubs against the flesh, and the flesh screams. The worship does not appeal to the senses, there is no pomp and outward glory. You get stuck with somebody like me singing toward you. There is, in the order, no one to kneel down to. There is not a human king that you can see. There is not the guy. There is no one who is glorious. What you have is an order that is a republican order in the strong, in the the little letter R sense. The sense of a republic, a council, ruled by law. And so there is lacking all of the appeal of an emperor for the flesh. There is lacking all of that outward appeal of the senses for the worship. And there is lacking any appeal to the hearts of men, except for the conscience which hurts them, to the doctrine. And so it is a pain-inducing message with a pain-inducing worship, with a pain-inducing order that requires a lot of strength. And you don't have it. We don't have it. We don't have the strength. God has the strength. He is the God of all strength giving, who gives strength to us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to give strength to those who are in any trouble with the strength giving with which we ourselves are given strength by God. God gives the strength. He will cause us to believe the doctrine, to advance in the doctrine, to worship rightly in spirit and in truth, and He will cause the right order to be put into place and to be maintained. And He will cause that host of heaven here in the earth to grind to dust the empires of the world. This is the strength He gives. Verse 5, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our comfort, strength, also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the comfort. So this idea of strength, strength to do your duty, strength to maintain the course, and then opposition arises in the church. There is no opposition that hurts so badly as the opposition of covenanted brothers. Which is why the end of this book, 
chapters 10 through 13, dealing with super apostles and those covenanted brethren who have aligned with them, is a section of spiritual warfare that is intense. He is essentially working through the process of a train wreck in this letter. This letter is the fourth letter to the Corinthians. There are references to the other letters here. We have, obviously, 1 Corinthians, but there are other ones as well. And so what we find is references to letters that we don't have. And so we have, snapshot, we have, na- we have snapshots of the train wreck. We have snapshots of the schism in process, of the collapse that's occurring. But that collapse is a collapsing away of the dead heap and it is for the good of the true church. And so that's what we see in 2 Corinthians. So all of this talk of strength, we get our strength from God. And the blessings that we receive are to strengthen each other, and the hardships that we receive are to strengthen each other. And how can those things work? If we go through hardship and God sustains us, that should be an encouragement to each other. If we go through hardship and we are comforted and then we are blessed, that should be an encouragement to each other. As long as we stay the course, as long as we maintain the faith, as long as we are shoulder to shoulder, we should be able to be an encouragement to each other. Verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and does deliver us, in whom we trust that He will still deliver us. You also, helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on your behalf, for the gift granted to us through many. So this idea that there are, there are difficulties, there are trials, there are harms, and there are risks that you take as a Christian, that you should take as a Christian, that are beyond the ability of your flesh to sustain. The power of God and the providential care of God is such that He preserves us through and gives us strength to do it. It says in verse 9, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. Well, first of all, they have deadness in them in terms of their unbelief. There is curse. There is, as far as the arm of the flesh can see, no way that they could escape some of the circumstances that they were in. And we're going to find that Paul has managed to go through a number of punishments already, some of which may have literally killed him. And God may have literally resurrected him from the dead. And so, if it were up to the flesh, and not the God who raises the dead, they would be dead. Another thing about the sentence of death is that's judicial language. The sentence of death. So there's the curse from God, and obviously Christ deals with that. But also, what you have is, Paul was a persecutor and murderer of the church. What does he deserve? Death penalty. Death penalty. And God 
has preserved him from that. Verse 12, For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand, what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand, even to the end, as also you may have understood us in part, as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast, as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so our boasting, verse 12, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity. Okay, so simplicity is this. Simplicity is not being double-tongued, not being obscure. Right when, there's, when the armies are lining up for the obedience to Christ and obedience to Satan, you don't leave people in suspense on it. You just line up under the banner of Christ. That's the simplicity of it. That might seem contrary to fleshly wisdom. The simplicity of it is, by not trying to hide it, guess who gets the glory when you win? So we are to plainly announce that we are for Christ. We are not to hide our acceptance of His Word. We are not to be weak in terms of our proclamation of it. We are to boldly say the things the world hates that the Bible says. So there's simplicity in it. We also don't add to it. We don't try to add a bunch of things, a bunch of complexity, a bunch of things that aren't there, a bunch of things that are supposed to make us look wise to the world. The simplicity of Christ is wisdom. The simplicity of Christ is wisdom. And that simplicity accords with integrity, godly sincerity. If you are bold in your speech, it helps you to be non-hypocritical. If you are non-hypocritical, it bolsters your faith. The simplicity of doing what God commands, proclaiming what God commands, helps you to avoid hypocrisy. It beats upon your conscience more plainly than anything else. And the most dangerous enemy is not the world and not the devil. It's your own flesh. Because you can't get away from it. So you need the simplicity and you need the godly sincerity so you can escape lying to yourself with fleshly wisdom. but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. So there's this idea of the testimony of the conscience having conducted well. I have had many people whom I am so grateful that I dealt with them in a way that looking back I can say, I'm glad I'm blameless here because it makes it so that the betrayals are so much less painful. It's just very plain, I was wrong, that's great, moving on. That makes life so much easier. Verse 13. For we are not writing any other things to you 
than what you read or understand. There's not some hidden message here. It's not like, look at every 14th letter and you'll get what we're really saying. There's no winking. There's no nodding. There's no elbows. There's nothing going on here. There's no pointing of the feet. This is just plain, straightforward speaking. We're not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. This is the grammatical, contextual, literal, and logical interpretation of the text. Now, I trust you will understand, even to the end, as also you have understood us in part. That seems to be a reference to 1 Corinthians 13, about having partial revelation and therefore understanding in part. That we are your boast, as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. How is that? Because in 1 Corinthians, he talked about he who boasts, let him boast in this, that he knows and understands God, right? Well, they, the apostles, are able to boast that they have preached the knowledge of God and that it has been believed. Others have known it. These Corinthians are able to boast that they have received the knowledge of God from Paul and Timothy, from others. And so they can boast that they have received this. And all of them have received their gifts of faith or of preaching from God. Verse 15. So there is the koinonia there. The fellowshipping. The sharing together. Verse 15. And in this confidence, I intended to come to you before, that you might have a second benefit. To pass by way of you to Macedonia. You remember he talked about the desire to come through there? In 1 Corinthians. Well, apparently it didn't happen. And people are saying, this Paul guy is a flibberty gidget. He doesn't do what he says. Can't rely upon him. Some prophet. Hey prophet, where are you going to go next? These are the kinds of things that the super apostles would be saying of him. To pass by way of Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? He's saying, look, I'm planning to do it again. Does that show you that I'm serious? Well, if they think he's lying, no. But he's saying, I was planning to come before. I wasn't able to. I'm planning to do it now. Does that suggest to you that I took this lightly? That I don't care? Or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? Now, that part right there, what is he saying? Well, the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh? What does the flesh do? The flesh boasts in certainty of outcomes and actions, as though we are God. I can do this thing. I'm going to go here and trade and make a profit. Yes, yes. I'm never going to come to do this thing. No, no. We have a phrase in our culture, never say never is meant to rebuke the flesh. This idea that you don't know in your flesh what's going to happen, and if you plan according to the flesh, you're going to stupidly pretend as though you control the future. But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. So the planning we have is not something that we can have certainty about, but the teaching that we give should have certainty. As God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. It wasn't binary off and on. And it wasn't A and non-A. 
It wasn't yes and no. We have logic embedded here very plainly. We should not speak out of both sides of our mouth yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in Him was yes. They, they taught plainly. If you have a preacher who contradicts himself, and when it's shown to him, he won't admit it, you have a wolf. If you have a preacher who contradicts himself, and when it's shown to him, he won't admit it, you have a wolf. And I think many, I would dare say most, I would dare say the vast majority of pulpits in America are filled with men who say yes and no. And the danger is that they seek to take the Bible and make it palatable. The Bible is not palatable. If man seeks to swallow it down by his own strength, he will yak it up. This is not something that you can believe. It is not something you can tolerate. It is not something you can sit under by the power of the flesh. You will reject it. And if you take it in, you will twist it. Unless the Holy Spirit causes you to understand and believe. It is the fragrance of death to those who do not believe. But to those who have been given life, it is the fragrance of life. It causes joy. And it gives comfort. It gives strength. It makes it so that you are built up. It makes it so that you can exercise dominion. It makes it so that you can disciple nations. Verse 16. Actually, verse 17. Nope, I'm lying. See? Yes, no. But I'm admitting it. So I'm not a wolf. Verse 18. But if God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in Him was yes. For all the promises of God in Him, in Christ, are yes, and in Him, amen, to the glory of God through us. So we get all of the promises of God through the mediation of Jesus Christ in a way that does not contradict itself. Now He who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us in God who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now we think about the establishing work. The establishing work is stabilizing, foundationally. What are the basic doctrines? They are the milk. Where has our reformed forebearer church captured the milk? Shorter catechism. Be well established in that. Solas, Tulip, Trinity, Incarnation. Get the Ten Commandments. Know the Lord's Prayer. Baptism, Lord's Supper. The use of the Word. That's what's laid out for us in the Shorter Catechism. Being established in those basic things. God anoints. He gives strength. Anointing we have is symbolically in baptism. It is the reality of it is given to us in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It gives us strength to teach, to exercise dominion, to use the powers that are given to us. 
He seals us. He marks us externally so that others will see us. And He also keeps our faith in us and won't let it exit. And He gives us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee that we won't lose our faith. It is the deposit. This is a thing that comes up over and over again. This idea that the Holy Spirit's a guarantee. If you have faith, you know you have the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit, then what God has done is He's offered up the Holy Spirit as a security deposit. If He doesn't give you all the stuff He promised, He'll let you keep the Holy Spirit. And He's not going to do that. He's not going to lose one of the members of the Trinity. He's not going to fail to pay the rest. Verse 23, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul. This is a self-maledictory oath. Anybody who believes that Jesus was teaching in the Beatitudes that you can never swear ever is going to have a really hard time with the rest of the New Testament because there's lots of swearing. Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. So why didn't He come to Corinth? Because it was going to spare them something, some sort of suffering. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but we are fellow workers for your joy. For by faith you stand. So, he is not saying that they need to submit their will and intellect to him. Having dominion over your faith. The papacy explicitly demands that you submit your will and intellect to the Pope. The famous line amongst the Jesuits, and a common oath there, is a swearing to believe that if the Pope says black is white, you will believe it. That is wickedness. Paul says that he, the Apostles, evangelists, or prophets of the New Testament do not have dominion over your faith. God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrine and commandments of men. Insofar as Paul is bringing the Word of God, we ought to believe it. And we are to judge it to see if it's yes-yes or if it's yes-no or no-no. That's what you're to do with all teachers. We are fellow workers for your joy. That is what officers are. They are people who are working with you, which means, by the way, you're also working. You're working. Officers are working. It is not a kleros laity distinction where only the priests are working. You are all priests. You are all involved in the work. So if you don't know how you're involved in the work, figure that out. Make it quick. Make it important to you to figure out what gifts do you have how can you use them how can you help we organize by households by churches inside of churches it is by officers and officer groups not that we have dominion over your faith but our fellow workers for your joy for by faith you stand it's by believing the word of God that you stand you should be established in the faith verse Chapter one, chapter 2, verse 1. But I determined this within myself, that I should not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? 
Paul did not want to come in a condition of sorrow to Corinth because he thought he would simply be pulling from their strength. And he determined that he would not go to them when he was in sorrow to have them have to bear his burdens and lift him up. But instead, he sacrificed. And what are the super apostles doing? They're making that sacrifice on his part into something wicked. False teachers, wolves, are so good at figuring out how to make every act of righteousness into an act of wickedness. And to make every act of wickedness into a righteousness. Tolerance, the virtue of our age. And on the other side, if somebody is in a conservative circle, there's a intolerance for people who care about doctrine, which is a doctrine. You have these sorts of things where there's this taking of things. As opposed to taking strength and endurance and making that the virtue, it's tolerance. Instead of making it so that doctrine that helps us to discern into a virtue, you make it into a negative. Right worship becomes something that is somehow wrong and divisive. Church order that's meant to preserve liberty is talked about as though it were somehow a power grab. You have all these kinds of things that are said and done. The, the, the virtues of the righteous. When you look at the covenanters who sought to uphold the covenant in Scotland and they had effectively fought a war in order to see reformed worship and government and doctrine maintained to prevent it from being taken away by the Book of Common Prayer. At the end, when the monarchy was restored, a thousand Presbyterian ministers ejected from their churches. Some of the churchmen met with them in the fields. Those churchmen were hunted down. A special policing agency called the Dragoons sent to hunt them and find them and kill them. And the idea was that they were the troublemakers of Scotland. This is what happens over and over and over again. Nehemiah and Ezra, unwilling to cooperate with the people who mix the worship of the true God with the worship of false gods when they were building a temple, are said to be divisive. If you, if you go to, uh, to the Bible Project, the one that has the videos about the summaries of the Bible, it was the Bible Project. They, they talk about Ezra on there. And they say that Ezra was like a meanie for not being willing to let the other people work with him. Okay, this, is, this is the interpretation. So you read it, and Ezra, who is a prophet of God and a priest of God, who has been commissioned to do this and is accomplishing this work, without any negative judgment in the text itself, he's being judged as somehow being a divisive person. You see this kind of thing all over the place. The taking of a virtue and making it into a vice is a wickedness that false teachers are very good at. Chapter 2, verse 1, But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? Why is that? Paul is assuming the best about the Corinthians, that they would care about his suffering, and that they would suffer if they saw him suffering. And so he sought to spare them the burden of carrying his suffering. Verse 3, And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy. Right? He's saying, if I came to you in sorrow, it would cause you sorrow, which 
would destroy the benefit of bringing me joy. If I came to you to get joy, it would hurt me to see you sorrow. So it wouldn't even provide me with the comfort I wanted. That's why I didn't come to you. Having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. So he's saying, I'm interpreting you charitably. I'm assuming that if I came to you, you'd want to help to lift my burdens. And I'm assuming that my joy is your joy, my sorrow is your sorrow. I didn't come to you for that reason. But you're interpreting me uncharitably. You're assuming that I didn't come to you because I don't care about you. So this is a lesson in charitable interpretation. Verse 4, he's defending himself against slander. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. I didn't come to you to get comfort, but I did expend the effort to write to you. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent. Not to be too severe. In other words, if somebody's caused you grief about the fact that I didn't come to you, even though I tried real hard to avoid giving you grief by not coming to you, then I didn't cause you grief. He caused it for all of you. So now he's saying, the one that said I didn't come to you because I don't care about you, he's caused you grief. He's the one that you should blame, not me. Verse 6. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. So now, this discussion of the idea of the one who causes grief to the whole body, we think about the punishment that was given to the man who was talked about in 1 Corinthians. And it talks about a punishment inflicted by the majority. We've already talked about how it's the majority of the saints. That's from the context of the first chapter, first verse. And that excommunication is sufficient for such a man, for a man who brings slander as well, so that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him. So in other words, when they repent, after receiving this punishment, you should forgive them and give them strength and not keep them out. When you look at the early church writing about this over and over again this is understood to be the man who is talked about in 1 Corinthians and this is the position when you read uh, commentaries of reformers and so forth every now and then you'll find somebody like Tertullian who says no you could never let a guy who did that back in the church and that is not the point here the point here is not that there's a different person being talked about the point here is even a man who's committing incest with his mother-in-law, if he repents, he is to be restored to the church. Paul is a murderer, and he was restored and made an apostle. Otherwise, 
someone like that might be swallowed up with too much sorrow. And that means they would be likely to commit suicide. It would be a stumbling block to push them over the edge. Verse 8, Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. This is the language of swiftness. Do this before anything happens. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. I wrote to you before. Are you going to excommunicate this guy or not? I'm writing to you now. Are you going to restore him or not? Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. This is the acknowledgement of the recognition of authority between churches. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. The lack of forgiveness is one of the great destroyers of the church. You can be called someone who is divisive for exercising church discipline, and you can also be called overly lax for being someone who restores people after they repent. We are called to exercise discipline to the unrepentant and to be swift to restore the repentant. It is a test on both sides. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed to Macedonia. Troas is where Paul had the vision of a man from Macedonia imploring him to come and help in Acts 16. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Now, we talked about in the very beginning this idea of strength, 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 comfort, comfort, comfort. God gives comfort. He gives strength so that we can do our work. Well, that strength is to lead us in triumph always. So whether somebody is disciplined and doesn't repent, or whether somebody is disciplined and does repent, whether there is a proclaiming of the gospel and a new convert comes, or there's a proclaiming of the gospel and a new enemy comes, whatever it is, Christ is leading us in triumph and accomplishing His purpose. And He gives us strength to be able to deal with both the highs and the lows. The new converts and the betrayals. To deal with the rejections. And to also deal with reformation and revival. He leads us in triumph in Christ. And through us, God diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. This diffusing of the fragrance points to the idea that we, as we are going, we are like the incense that is burned in the temple. We are a sacrifice. And this idea that there's a fragrance that's being diffused. And so, there is, as we pray, we need to remember that that the incense points to the idea of the prayers of God's saints rising up to heaven. And so we pray. And as we're going around praying, that's a part of our warfare in the way that there's a diffusing of fragrance. And at the same time, there is the proclamation, the word, 
and it goes forth, and it spreads out a fragrance that others are aware of. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We are the fragrance of Christ. It's pleasing to God. He has the sweet-smelling aroma of like a burnt sacrifice. This idea of the the fragrance of the burnt sacrifice of holiness. And so this sweet-smelling aroma, this fragrance that soothes God, so to speak. He is smelling Christ as the Word is put forward, as His law is obeyed, as there is proper prayer. We are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. It's the same fragrance. And God sees it objectively. And He has designed everybody and every circumstance, so that the reaction that occurs is exactly the reaction that he wants to bring about. Verse 16, To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death. Subjectively, they think that Christ is death, and it pushes them to death. To the other, the aroma of life leading to life. For the rejection of Christ deepens death. The acceptance of Christ and the hearing more leads to more life. That you might have life and have it abundantly. And who is sufficient for these things? Who are we just walking around? We are speaking the word of God, applying the word of God, praying these things. Who is sufficient for them? To look at this and go, you are walking around seeing the plan of God unfold. Verse 17. For we are not, as the rest, peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Now speaking in the sight of God is speaking, again this is an oath, is speaking, calling upon God as a witness, saying what we're preaching is true. May God bless it if it's true and bless us if it's true. May He curse us if it's false. That's what this idea of speaking in the sight of God in Christ is. And they're saying that our speaking will be accepted in the sight of God because of our union with Christ, our in Christness. But he's saying, unlike other people, he and those who work with him are not, as the rest, peddling the Word of God. Now, this peddling of the Word of God, you could always also translate it as adulterating for gain, the Word of God. The Bible is not particularly hard to read. There are some hard sections, but if you just pick up the Bible and read Genesis through 2 Kings, it is a very straightforward several hundred pages. God created. God establishes the institutions. God gives law. God tells us how to order civil society. God gives examples of the collapse of the church and families and societies as blessings and curses. Lots of approved examples. Lots of disapproved examples. It is very straightforward. The 
the more complex books, the prophets, the wisdom books, the New Testament, is where all the time gets spent. But nobody knows Genesis through 2 Kings. We're going to be in the morning just reading through that, by the way. Just the reading is going to be Genesis through 2 Kings. We're going to keep going, chapter by chapter by chapter. It is simple. It is narrative. It is clear law. And as we get that, as we look at that text... When you read the first five books of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible are the foundation upon which the rest of the Bible is built. In order to judge anything else in the Bible, you've got to know those first five books. The Torah is the foundation upon which the rest of the Bible is built. So many peddle the Word of God. They sell the Word of God to meet the market demand. There is an adulterating of the content in order to meet with the market once. We see it in extreme and absurd ways now. But there is adulterating of the word that has been going on for a long time. So we have to judge everything by the word of God. We have to go back to it. We have to take it in. You have to study it. And you have to test The Word of God is not beyond your ability to understand. It is plain words in many, many places. But you will hate it unless the Holy Spirit causes you to believe it. And so, what we need is to realize that it is God who determines what we will do. And we have to use discernment to see who is peddling, who is adulterating the Word of God in order to make gain. So the Word of God must be kept pure. We must not allow people to mix it with other things in order to get a following. We must not allow it to be mixed with other things in order to seek to attract a crowd. We must not abandon it out of convenience because of the fact that it's difficult to catechize and to help people to develop. What we are called to do is to help to establish people in the milk, in the foundation, to get them ready, to make it so they can work, and from there, being established in the faith, can arrive at maturity. And at maturity, they can help to advance. This methodology is very different from the fast church-building methodology of the world. You have the guy who can attract all the people with worship that appeals to the flesh, with doctrine that tickles the ears. That is not the method of building the church. The method of building the church is applying the true doctrine, right worship, with right order, and having a multi-generational vision. And that multi-generational vision looks like encouraging people to have a deep knowledge of God. And that involves finding useful work to do and finding all of the gifts that have been given to the body of Christ and employing them to accomplish useful things in order, in churches, in officer representation groups, in households, and as individuals. We're not as the rest, peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God, 
in Christ. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights?